0: for a building as well, what we need, just so I can be clear, we need at least somewhere around thirty to 50,000 square feet, so a, you know, a little 10,000 square foot building isn't going to do it, 15,000, we need about a thirty to 50,000 square foot building, uh, there's around 4,200 square feet in an acre, so we need about five acres at least, but I would like adjoining acres that we could um, get first rights of refusal on. So that we could buy them later. Uh, But we need at least 300 to 350 parking spaces. We've had people come to us about buildings and there's like 50 parking spaces out there. Well, unless we built quadruple decking parking, it's not going to work. We we need about 300 to 350 at least parking spaces. So I'm just, I'm telling you this because it says you have not because you ask not. And I believe in being specific with God. Amen. All right. So pray about those things. We're going through 2 Peter. Did y'all notice on the radio tonight, they messed up and put on Hey Jude? Did you notice that? Did you call them and complain? How could, you know, I listen every night because I want to be sure they're, they're playing it right and I want to see if there's anything we can improve and I'm always wanting to get better at it and so we listen. And here we were supposed to be in the middle of Red Letter Living and here comes the Beatles singing Hey Jude. So I said, something is wrong. So they went way back and pulled out of those archives, but it was still the Word. That's fine. All right. Well, let's stand and read 2 Peter. And we are in chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 tonight and get into chapter 2. And tonight's title is called A Light in a Dark Place. A Light in a Dark Place. Let's read verse 19 together and then we're going to pray. Can we read it good and loud with all kinds of gusto? Let's read it. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. And we pray the anointing of the Spirit of God would rest on the teaching of this word. That lord you will build us up in the faith that this church will be a congregation of christians and those listening by radio that we will be fruit bearing christians that we will be spiritually productive christians and lord victorious christians so lord put this word in our hearts illuminate our spirits and give us understanding that we can know what the Spirit of God was saying to your church through these, message, these verses tonight, in Jesus' name, would you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tell your neighbor, it's going to be good tonight. Perk up and listen. Well, I love Second Peter. It's so powerful. It's really kin, very similar to Jude. Uh, Jude and 2 Peter could almost be brother and sister. 2 uh, uh, Peter, it feels like you're reading Jude sometimes, and Jude, like you're reading 2 Peter. Uh, so, tonight now, Peter's starting out, and he's saying, we have a very sure word of prophecy. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, that means what he's referring to is the Old Testament word of prophecy is a more certain confirmation of God's truth than what we saw ourselves on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, you remember Peter talks about when Jesus took him and James and John to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and as they were standing there, suddenly the face of Jesus lit up like the sun, his garment became white as snow, and suddenly there were two people standing next to him. Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. And Peter was dazzled by this. In the book that I'm just now finishing uh, on friends, chapter 12, I talk about this, how Simon Peter and John both were dazzled by what they saw. And I've shared with you often that the, uh, many times when they're referring to this, they use the perfect tense. In the Greek language, the perfect tense uh, refers to something that happened in the past. It can be 40, 50 years ago. But it's still impacting you today. It's still impacting you today. That's the perfect tense. And you'll find Peter talking about the Mount of Transfiguration as if it had happened yesterday. It's so powerful we heard the voice of God audibly saying to us this is my beloved son hear him yes sir and here's Jesus dazzling white this was an incredible spiritual vision but here's what Peter is saying as real as that was as impacting as that was we have a more sure word of confirming prophecy through the Old Testament prophets than that experience. And I couldn't amen that more. I want to tell you folks, anything you experience needs to be held up to the sifter of the Word of God. You can experience a lot of things, and I've seen a lot of people experience a lot of things, but the enemy can really mess with your emotions. And whether or not you have an incredible spiritual experience with God, that's great, and I'm all for them. And that happens to be what changed my life, was experiences with God, being saved, experiencing the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I've seen miracles. I've seen signs and wonders. But my sure word of prophecy is not those experiences. It's this. It's this word. And that's what Peter is saying. He said, when it comes right down to it, the cement foundation we stand on is not what we experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration, but it's the Word of God. Now remember, the people to whom Peter wrote did not have the New Testament. They didn't have what you've got in your hand. They didn't have the New Covenant. The long line of Old Testament uh, prophetic scriptures fulfilled in so many ways in the life of Jesus was to them a mightier form of evidence than one experience of Peter's. Peter had seen Jesus transform before him. He had been dumbstruck and awed by the visions and voice of God surrounding the event. Even so, says Peter, we have something more certain than that experience of mine and it's the prophetic word. It's the prophetic word. It's this word that Jesus stood on when the devil approached him and tried to tempt him, to ruin his messiahship, to sabotage his mission. Jesus didn't turn to an experience. He didn't start blurting out, you know, things like, I'm virgin born. I've had certain experiences. No. He he went to the Word. The Word is our concrete. And if you ever get anything out of my ministry to you, I want you to get out of my ministry to you, that the Word of God, this Word is the Word of the living God, and it can be stood on, it can be lived by, it can be died by. It is the living Word of God. Every word breathed out of the nostrils of God in the original languages. More sure comes from a Greek word meaning stable, fast, firm. The idea is of something that can be trusted on, relied on. The prophetic word, says Peter, is a more sure foundation than even the signs and wonders that we saw. Now speaking about that word, here's what he says. Which you do well to heed as to a light that shines in a dark place. It is the wisdom of God for every human being on earth to heed the words in this book you do well to heed these words as to a light shining into a dark place. You do well to heed the prophetic words. Light is from the word meaning a lamp. And David said, your word is a lamp to my feet and it's a light to my path. A flashlight shines far ahead of you, but a lamp gives you just enough light for your next step you may not see all that you wish you did how many of you wish tonight that you could be God for about five minutes and see how it's all gonna end up and how it's all gonna work out and how it's all gonna shake down come on some of you say uh-uh, uh-uh no I don't wanna know <laughs> I, I see you. I'm not sure I do either I'm kinda glad that only God can look into the future that far but here's what he's saying he says you would do well to heed this word as a light a lamp that shines into a dark place. You may not see all you wish you did, but you are guaranteed enough light for the next step. You know, I've learned this about God. I say, God, can't I see just about a mile down the road? Here's what God says. No, Jeff, I'm going to show you the next step. And I've learned that if I take the next step, then the light opens up the next step. That lamp lights my path so that I can take step after step after step. But if I don't take the step it shows me, there's never another one revealed to me. Our God is a God who honors obedience. And the walk of faith is when he gives you enough light for the next step, you take that next step. And that paves the way for the next one and the next one. But if we disobey, we end up walking around the mountain just like the children of Israel did, dazed and confused, dumbfounded, perplexed, in despair, not knowing what is wrong. Well, usually if you're walking around a mountain over and over and over again, there is somewhere back there you did not obey God. And because you didn't obey God, you're stuck walking around the cul-de-sac of disobedience. How many of you have ever driven around a cul-de-sac more than once? It doesn't take but once. I think I've seen that house before. I think I saw that tree before. You realize you're in a cul-de-sac and you get out. But here's what happens spiritually. If we don't obey the Lord when He shines that light on our path, We just go around in a cul-de-sac seeing the same house, same things, same problems, same perplexities, same faith challenges until we obey God. Children of Israel, ask them about it. They walked around 40 years in a geographical terrain that should have taken two weeks. gosh, that makes me hurt every time I say it. I just weep for them. They could have traversed that, they could have traversed that land in two weeks. They could have been eating those big grapes in three weeks. But instead, around and around and around and around and around and around and around. around. All that God was asking of them is to trust and obey. For there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's all he was asking them to do. Just trust me, and then do what I tell you to do. And we're gonna we're gonna cross that Jordan and go to the promised land. But a million people never saw it. Their kids did. I wouldn't have wanted to be one of those dying parents because I know there was about fifty eyes looking at me. He dead yet? Because we're ready to cross over. I mean, they weren't sitting at your bedside saying, "Lord, heal him." Uh. Uh. They were ready to cross over. They'd seen mom and dad's mistakes. So they said, we want to cross over. We will do it. Trust and obey. And they got through. Now, dark, when it says a light that shines in a dark place, that's what the word is. It's a light that shines in a dark place. Dark means literally a dry place. That's what dark in the Hebrew means there. Or I'm sorry, in the Greek. It means a dry place. The word refers to a place without God. It can also mean squalid, parched, and general neglect. But here in Peter, it would be best described as murky, a dark place, a murky place, like muddy water, muddy water. The Old Testament prophecies are likened to a lamp in that they provided in the murky, darkened atmosphere of a lost world, knowledge of the coming of Christ to earth after whose appearing the light of his gospel shine on the hearts of men like the morning sun rising. You know, folks, sometimes we just need to be still and bury ourselves in that word because the waters are murky, they're muddy. And sometimes you ought not take a step until you've been in the word and in prayer long enough for the light to shine and God to say, this is what you're to do. In the meantime, you wait for the water to clear. I learned that as a six-year-old boy, seven-year-old boy, because I loved to hunt crawdads. I used to go down to the creek every day. We lived in the creek. Me and my friends, me and my buddies, we crawl all through those sewer pipes. We did things. Today, it still makes my skin crawl when I think about it. Because we would crawl through those sewer pipes, whole blocks, and come out on the other side and all the while looking for crawdads in there. And we were always in some creek somewhere where there was these, you know, little lobster-like creatures called crawdads or crawfish that some of you eat. And I can't imagine it. But you do. But I just used to like to catch them. I was a little hunter. I liked catching them. But I did learn this. Sometimes you had to flush them into the water by taking a stick and, and, and moving it up and down in the crawdad hole and it made them come out under the water but when you did that it muddied the water and I learned you don't go feeling down through that muddy water for a crawdad but one time and he I did it once and I didn't pull him out I jerked my hand out and he was hanging on to my finger with all of his might, blood running down my hand. And I learned, no, be patient. You wait for the muddy water to clear because in all muddy water, there's crawdads. I mean, don't make a decision when the water's muddy. You're going to get bit. So you wait, and I've learned to get into the Word of God and into prayer, and I wait for the light to shine. I wait for God to shine light on the situation, and I wait for Him to say, now take your next step. And you take that next step when the water's clear. His Word is like a light shining in a dark place, and eventually His Word clears the muddy water. So you know what to do in that relationship. You know what to do with that habit. You know what to do with that business decision. You know what to do with what you're supposed to do because God's Word, like a light, shines on your path. So let's read the translation, can we? And we have the prophetic word as a sure foundation to which you are doing well to pay attention as to a lamp which is shining in a squalid place until day dawns and a morning star rises in your hearts. Praise God. So those Old Testament people... Before Jesus came, all they had was the prophecies concerning him. And they would read them in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and other places. And when they would read them, it would give them light about what was coming. And they knew that Messiah was coming. Now, let's read verses 20 and 21 together, can we? Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, what in the world does that mean? Private interpretation means, okay, let's take private. Private means unique or one's own. Interpretation is from a word meaning a loosening or unloosing. So the Old Testament prophets did not unloose from their own minds their own unique prophecies. This word was not unloosed from the imagination of men. It didn't come from there. Are you with me? They didn't get a good idea. You say, well, I think I'll write this about God, or I think I'll predict this about the future. Well, no. The Old Testament prophets did not unloose from their own minds, their own unique prophecies. The Old Testament prophecies did not originate within the prophet's imagination. Okay? No way. If that were true, then we're standing on a religion built by men. Let me go home. I'm done with it, if that's the case. But that's not the case. So they weren't sitting there, Isaiah in his day, Jeremiah; his day, Ezekiel; his day, Daniel, Hosea, Habakkuk, all the rest—they weren't sitting there in, in, their day, in their day, concocting a religion. No. Verse twenty-one tells us. Verse twenty-one contains the only reference to the Holy Spirit in Second Peter, and the Spirit says Peter is the source of prophetic inspiration. The men spoke, but the Spirit impelled them move them along. For instance, we might say the boat was impelled toward the shore by the tide. You got a boat out in the ocean. Turn the engine off and sit there. Pull the anchor up and those waves are going to move that boat towards the shore. That's the idea of what happened with these men. It was not uh, uh, what we would know as automatic writing. They didn't go into a trance. And, and God grabbed their hand, and some weird Steven Spielbergish thing happened. It wasn't like that, you know. It wasn't, you know. But it says the Spirit of God touched them and carried them along like a boat being pushed to the shore. Impelled them. They were carried along, and oftentimes. They didn't know what they were writing. They didn't fully understand it. Isaiah didn't fully understand what he saw. I can guarantee you, John didn't understand everything he saw when he wrote the Revelation. But they were moved along, carried along, impelled by the Holy Spirit. And and they wrote. And I I guarantee you, sometimes they they wrote it, looked at it, and said, Wow, what, what does all that mean? Isaiah had to have said to himself, what does it mean he was bruised for our iniquities? He was, with his stripes you were healed, so on and so forth. When he prophesied of Jesus, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think he understood some of it, but he did not understand the full import of what he had written because he was moved along by the Holy Spirit. John sure didn't. When John talked about earthquakes and meteorites falling out of heaven and all the things that you read about in the book of Revelation, I guarantee you he looked at that and went, Wow, I was moved along by the Holy Ghost, fully conscious, writing as I was moved. But I don't understand it all. Okay? Verse 21, for uh, even the prophets themselves, as I just said, did not fully understand all that their prophecies implied. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that beautiful? moved along by the Holy Spirit. And see, if you don't believe that, you're in big trouble. This is why this is something I want to impart to you, to this church, to your life, that I think a lot of people struggle with because they've never come to a firm conclusion about the Word of God. They say, how can you say it's the Word of God? There's other religious books, other religious teachers. Yeah, but this book says about itself all scripture is God breathed is given by inspiration theonoustos breathed out of the nostrils of God and it's all profitable for correction instruction and righteousness and so on and so forth these holy men of old were moved on most of them Jewish Luke was not Jewish that's about it And Jesus was a Jew. You owe your salvation to the Jews. And you owe the Bible to the Jewish people. They were all Jewish except Luke. Moved along by the Holy Ghost. That is so powerful. So let's read this translation, can we? Knowing this first that every prophecy of Scripture is not of a particular or limited meaning. For not by the desire of man did prophecy come aforetime, but being carried along by the Holy Spirit, men spoke from God and wrote it down, and it's been preserved through the ages, and you have it in your hand. It is the Word of God. There is no other book like it in the entire earth. Not another one. It is the Word of God. And you'll never defeat the devil until you come to that conclusion. How can you quote it to the devil if you're not sure it's the Word of God? How can you stand in the hour of temptation if you're wondering whether or not certain portions of the Bible are valid? No. It's valid from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It teaches you the way to live, the way to die, the way to defeat the devil, the way to walk in the Spirit, the way to honor God, the way to live an honorable life, the way to witness, the way to glorify God. It tells you everything you need to know. It's the Holy Word of God. I'm not telling you to worship the Word, but I am telling you to worship the God of the Word and trust Him. Now, before beginning chapter 2, let's briefly recap chapter 1. In verses 1 through 11, Peter has dealt with God's provision for a holy life in days of apostasy, which means turning away from the truth. Eagerly adding to your faith the virtues listed in verses 5 through 7, living a life controlled by the Holy Spirit and walking closely with Jesus Christ on a daily basis is the antidote to becoming entangled in sin. The person living this kind of life will be constantly warned by the Holy Spirit of the false doctrines permeating our world. If you will live in the Word, read it every day, wash your mind with it, heartily admit that you are brainwashed. You ought to be. If you're a believer, you ought to be brainwashed every day. And and if you're walking in the Holy Ghost seeking Him, there's going to be many times every day the Holy Ghost is going to warn you about something in this evil world. That's what Peter is saying. That's how you get discernment of spirits, walking in the Spirit. If you're walking in the flesh, you can't discern anything. Your whole radar system is set up to home in on flesh. But if you're walking in the Holy Ghost, then many times during the day, you're going to get a check on something. You're going to see something, and the Holy Spirit is going to say, avoid that turn away from that, reject that, renounce that, accept that, you're going to be warned several times in any given day. You're going to see something on TV, the Holy Ghost is going to say, that's not me. You're going to hear something taught, the Holy Ghost is going to say, that is not from God. We are, we are under the, the tutelage, under the leadership, under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit. And when you walk in the Word, live in the Word, and, and, and glorify God in your life and obey the Word, you're going to be a discerning Christian. Christian. And you're going to hear many times during the day, watch out, be warned about that, get away from that, sanctify yourself, come aside to me, get away, and glorify me. It's going to happen several times a day because we're living in an evil, fallen, blasphemous world. The person living this kind of life is going to be constantly warned by the Holy Spirit. In verses 12 to 21, In chapter 1, Peter advises a rigid commitment to the Word of God as an inspired, inerrant source of teaching and guidance for holy living. It is God's Word given by the Holy Spirit through holy men. Stand on it, live it, and trust it. Now, that's what he covered in chapter 1. Now, here we go to chapter 2. Is everybody blessed? Y'all okay? All right. Let's read verse 1, can we? But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now I want you to notice something. On the heels of dealing with divine provision for a holy life and the divine inspiration of the Scriptures... Peter now deals with the subject of false teachers in the church in verses 1 through 22. He has looked at the true prophets, now he's focusing on the false prophets. Now I want you to understand something about the word prophet. An Old Testament prophet like Isaiah not only predicted future events, but he also rebuked Israel for its sins and pointed the way to righteousness. An Old Testament prophet wasn't just a predictor of the future. They were preachers of righteousness and they preached to their generation, to their culture. Now, a New Testament prophet is someone who preaches the gospel of Christ to the unsaved and teaches the scriptures to the saints. So, wasn't well, that an evangelist and a pastor? Well, do you know prophet covers all of that? When I go out and I preach the gospel to the lost, I, I'm a prophet. And when I'm teaching you right now, I'm moving in a prophetic office. Because prophet means a declarer of truth. That's what prophet means. It's a de- and there's nothing super, super mysterious or heavy about it. It just means a declarer of truth. It's simple. A prophet is somebody who declares truth. I'm looking forward to prophesying in Reunion Arena. I'm looking forward to prophesying this Sunday. I love prophesying right now. I'm just declaring truth. And that's what a prophet does. Now, when Peter uses the word teachers, when he talks about false teachers infiltrating the church, he's referring to anyone who's involved in Christian activity, a pastor, an evangelist, or a teacher. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, Peter is talking about anybody who teaches the Bible. So Peter is talking about people who teach the Bible, Wrongly. Now, I'm glad that doesn't happen in our day and that passed away with the first century, but we can at least study it, right? Just want to see if you were out there. What really is spooky is somebody said, Amen. I want to see you afterwards. I'm going to pray for you. I'm kidding. Nobody said it. All right. But there were false prophets also among the people, Peter said. Among the people. Now, see the two words. There were, but there were. There were is from a Greek word meaning there arose. is the Greek word. It means they arose. They came about. They appeared. So there arose. There were self-appointed prophets who arose among the people. And here's what Peter says about them. He says, as it happened to them, it's going to happen to you in your church who will secretly bring in what, everybody? Destructive, say it loud, destructive heresies. That's what these false teachers do. They they arise seemingly within the ranks of the church. They arose. They appeared. And they taught the Bible, but they taught it wrong. Now watch. Watch. How do they do it? What, oh, the word who, forgot that. Who will bring, uh, secretly bring in destructive heresies? Who is not only talking about their identity, but also the type of people that they were. So what type of person or people were they? Peter says, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies secretly bring in that little phrase secretly bring in means to bring in alongside they will bring in alongside you you remember me talking on Sunday morning about the wheat and the tares you remember that this is a good example because because false teachers come in and get it right alongside you they buddy up to the church just yesterday Kathy gave me an article out of the paper of how bad fraud is in churches all over America And they were talking about how these false um, Christians were weaving their way into churches. And and this is exactly what the paper said. They buddy up to the church members, convince them that they are very strong Christians, and then lure them into a financial scheme that ends up breaking them. One man lost $500,000 to a fraudulent individual who came in with a group of people and here's what the paper said they are so masterful these people in getting the Christians the members of that church to believe in them that even when they are exposed as fraudulent the church members won't turn on them they are so convinced that the exposure is wrong who will secretly bring in, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be teaching you to deny Jesus Christ. It can be destructive teaching on finances. It can be destructive moral teaching. It can be a lot of things. But this is the way they get in. They, they bring themselves in alongside. That is, these false teachers will mix true doctrine with false. They never get up and say, I'm going straight to hell. Why don't you come too? uh uh-uh. They're going to say a lot of right things. Jesus is Lord, hallelujah, glory to God. Uh, you know, isn't he wonderful? And then they slide in that false teaching. That's how they do it. They'll mix true doctrine with false. They will say many right things and then cleverly include false teaching with it. One commentator says that the metaphor in the word is that of a spy or a traitor. They are they are traitors to the true word of God. They stealthily introduce false teaching among the true. Mormons do this. Jehovah's Witnesses do this. And other popular cults will talk about Jesus all day long. They'll get in your front door talking to you about Jesus. But wait till they sit down and open up what they really have to say but they also stealthily introduce false teaching along with the true. And these teachings are what Peter calls what, everybody? Destructive heresies. Now, I tell you, we're in a, a very deceiving generation. There's so many deceptions out there. There's a deception by the hour. I mean, if you, need a, if you need 24 deceptions for any given day, you've got them. They're out there. We're living in a day of deception. And many church people are being deceived, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. The word destructive is the translation of a Greek word that means ruin, the the destruction which consists in eternal misery. Destructive refers to the loss of everything that makes life worthwhile. These teachers that are false, who will, will come in and say, Jesus is Lord, I love the Lord, glory, hallelujah. The New Testament is just great. The all, I'm a Christian. Then when they bring in the heretical teaching, when they twist and skew the Word, Jesus said, you'll know it by its fruit. And if your life, after you've been under teaching for a season, if it's healthy, if it's strong, if you've been edified in the Holy Ghost, if you have matured, there's the fruit that reveals the content and the quality of the teaching. But if your life has gone haywire, if you've gotten off balance, if you have experienced some ruin, you are likely listening to false teachers teaching you to expect things from God that the Bible never teaches us to expect. Hyping up God. Here's what, you know, I want to be careful here, but I got to tell you, sometimes the, the um, Christian telethons I remember turning on one night uh, a Christian telethon one of the Christian stations and this guy was on there sweating and ranting and raving and he told the, the audience said you send your check in and as soon as your check makes it through the doors your runaway child is coming home and I, and I, I called I tell you, it it did, it ticked me. Because I picture people out there, I know how your heart can be absolutely ripped out of your chest by a child gone astray. And for somebody to say, as soon as you send your money in, that's a hearkening back to the, the sale of indulgences uh, in the in the Middle Ages, when that's what made Martin Luther get so mad he couldn't see straight, and he not, nailed his theses against the the church door in Wittenberg and started the whole Reformation, because they had a guy named Tetzel going around from little town to little town, and there in Germany, and in Europe, and and saying to these poor peasants, "Give your money," and as soon as your the the clang of your money. Uh, hits down on the bottom of this collection plate, your loved one's going to be delivered from purgatory. Well, number one, there is no purgatory. So they're not being delivered from any place because the place doesn't exist. But the second thing is they were selling blessings. And I think we need to be so careful in our day, and I know I'm going where angels fear to tread here, but that's okay because I do think the angels are treading with me on this one. That... that we got to be careful that we don't train Christians in the West that all blessings from God are purchased by giving. I'm going to tell you, if you didn't have a red cent in your pocket and you filed bankruptcy yesterday and you had no room to stay in tonight and you might sleep under a bridge, God will answer your prayer if you repent, turn to Christ and pray in the name of Jesus. But see, we can train people. You've got to be very careful what you are taught to expect from God. But be real sure if we teach people what to expect from God, that we got it from here. Because there's all kinds of people, folks, that are out of church today and may never return because somebody told them God was going to do something if they did a certain something and he didn't do it and they got disillusioned and filled with despair and lost their faith and walked away. I can tell you, you may not always get what you want, but you will get what you need. Okay? Now, Heresies comes from a word meaning choice. So here's the bottom line with that word. A heresy is the choice to accept a teaching contrary to sound doctrine. It's a choice. You hear hear bad teaching, you choose to accept that. That's heresy. Peter then deals with the most damaging heresy of all, that involving the substitutionary death of Christ for our sins. He says that these false teachers are even denying the Lord that bought them. The word bought is from a Greek word meaning redeem. In classical times, it was used to describe something purchased in the marketplace and was also used of the purchase of slaves in the slave market. The good news that we have, and we're going to trumpet it all over the world, is Jesus' blood was the ransom paid to redeem slaves of sin from slavery to sin. To teach against that blood reveals that these false teachers were not misguided Christians, but they were unsaved heretics unsaved heretics i'll tell you folks we're here because of the blood we're alive because of the blood we're forgiven because of the blood (laughs) hallelujah now he says and bring upon themselves swift destruction again the word destruction is speaking of eternal misery apart from a holy god that is in view here in other words these false teachers unless they repent we're going straight to hell lost forever. So can we read the translation? But there arose false prophets among the people, even as also among you there shall be false teachers who will be of such a character as to bring in alongside of true doctrine destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who purchased them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Kathy and I were driving home from radio producing last night we were listening to this guy on a talk show. I shouldn't be laughing because it really wasn't funny. He's he's liberal and, eh, you know, I listen sometimes because I want to know what they're thinking out there. And he was talking about um, he's, he's married to a Christian and he's as lost as a goose in a hailstorm, as we would say in Texas, not New York. And um, he said, "Now Jesus isn't my deity. Maybe he's your deity. He's not my deity." As if there's 20 deities, let me, let me find a deity. I think I like that deity. He's not my deity. Maybe he's yours. He's my wife's deity. He's not my deity. Guess what? One day, his knees are going to bow, you're my deity. Because any other false God is not a deity. But Jesus is a deity. A deity. Now, as with First John and Jude, Second Peter also harshly deals with false teachers who undermine sound doctrine and bring ruin to their listeners. Peter warned that there would also be false teachers among you. Let us walk in wisdom, turning away from any teaching that is contrary to clear Bible truth. Next week, we're going to look at the doom of false teachers and then get into some things that we haven't seen in these other messages out of uh, Jude and 1 John. So let's stand together today, can we? How many of you needed this? And God good? Can you say it with me? Jesus, Jesus. is deity. deity. Yeah, He is. He is. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to cleave to sound teaching and to turn away from what your spirit says is false, lest we come to ruin. And Lord, we pray for people tonight in the mormon church and jehovah's witnesses and all the various cults and all of those who have become snared by false teaching that you will reach in and deliver them shine that light into the dark place of that false teaching grab them and pull them out and set them free even some listening by radio right now that they'd be free from false teaching that has brought ruin and confusion to their spiritual life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Well, God is good.